But in this particular context, there is still emperor, emperor worship. There is still worshiping the deities of Rome, worshiping the deities of Egypt. And apparently, if you are familiar with this story, in this city there were not many Jews. There were no synagogues, therefore. That was the reason why Paul went down and worshipped on the river. You'll see up there, that's where Philippi is located there. And at that time, it's considered Macedonia. We would call that Greece now. And so, opening up your Bible there to chapter, chapter 16, verses 11. Let's read, all right? Therefore, putting out to sea from Troas, we ran a straight course to Samothrace, and on the following day to Neapolis. And from there to Philippi, which is the leading city of the district of Macedonia, a Roman colony, and we were staying in that city for some days. And on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to a riverside where we were supposing that we would be a place for prayer. Now, the reason why if there was no synagogue in a city, Jews would often try and find a river or a lake, a source of water, was for the ritual washings. So if that was not provided for in a synagogue, they would often, and that's exactly what Paul did here, he went to a place where there was water where if there were Jews in the area, they would be going there for ritual washing. And we sat down and began speaking to the women who had assembled. Verse 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Tyratara, a seller of purple fabrics and a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. And it happened that as we were going to the place of prayer, a certain slave girl, having a spirit of divination, met us, who was bringing her masters much profit by fortune-telling. Following after Paul and us, she kept crying out, saying, These men are bondservants of the Most High God, who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation. And she continued doing this for many days. But Paul was greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out at that very moment. And when, you know, isn't it interesting? Isn't it interesting that, I, I mean, this is, this is a question. If any of you have the answer, you get bonus points today because I don't have the answer. I didn't research it. Isn't it interesting that he's walking through the streets and he's been preaching. He's been doing ministry there. And this young woman has been following him around the entire time. You ever wonder why the first time he met her, he said, she has a demon, I know that. And he didn't heal her then? All right, that's bonus points. Get back to me, okay? But it took several days before he finally turned and he said, I'm done with this. Be healed, come out. But when her masters saw that her hope of profit was gone, They seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which are not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. And the crowd rose up together against them, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off of them and proceeded to order them to be beaten with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, after receiving such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, you think about that. He didn't put them in house arrest. He didn't put them, like, in the courtyard. He put them in the inner prison. And as we read the story, you're going to see that this inner prison was so incredibly dark, 
for him to see them, he had to go get light. So they're already in the inner prison with a locked door on them, and then they put them in stocks. You know, either they thought these guys were masterminds at getaway, or they were really trying to punish them. So they, here they are. They throw them in the inner prison and put their feet in, stock, put their feet in stocks. Verse 25, But about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to praise, of praise to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there came a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison house were shaken. Immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were unfastened. It's not uncommon to have earthquakes in this part of the world. It is uncommon for the earthquake to only do damage to the doors and the chains. It kind of tells you who the author of the earthquake was, doesn't it? And his purpose and intent. And when the jailer had roused out of sleep, that might have been a problem, huh? When the jailer had roused out of sleep and had seen the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. And he called for lights and rushed in and trembled with fear and fell down before Paul and Silas. And after he brought them out, he said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Here's your gospel. Anyone curious about what the gospel is? Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him together with all those who were in his house. And he took them that, were, he took them that very hour of the night and washed their wounds, and immediately he was baptized, he and all his household. And he brought them into his house and set food before them and rejoiced greatly, having believed in God with his whole household. Now when the day came and the chief magistrate sent their policemen saying, Release those men. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The chief magistrate has sent to release you. Now for, for come out and go in peace. Now pay close, close attention to what happens next. Because when people tell you what Christians should be like, Paul sets a very interesting example in the next thing. And Paul said, They have beaten us in public without trial. Men who are Romans and have thrown us into prison, and now they are sending us away secretly? No, indeed. But let them themselves come and bring us out. No one ever said Christians need to be milk toast, pushovers, lightweights. Paul was not one, and he said it's a great model for using the law in an appropriate way to accomplish the goals of the law. And the policemen reported these words to the chief magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. And they came and appealed to them. And when they had brought them out, they kept begging them to leave the city. And they went out of the prison and into the house of Lydia. And when they saw the brethren, they were encouraged and departed. Well, so here's this city that apparently was a good deal of racial prejudice against Jews. Therefore, that's the reason there was probably not a synagogue there. There were very few Jews. Notice in verse 20 and 21... The charges against Paul and Silas were for being Jewish. They're Jewish. They're not like us, and they're advocating practices that are illegal for us. Which was not true either. And by the end of this story, apparently only days, because in verse 18 when it's talking about the slave girl, it says many days. So by the end of this story, there has been a church established in Philippi. But note that it wasn't a group 
that would have come together to hang out on their own. It was a Jewish woman, a Roman soldier. Now then, the slave girl, you could, you could, I could go either way with the slave girl. The text does not say she came to Christ. But given the circumstances that she was healed, and given the circumstances of what we saw in history, most of the time, when any time anyone was healed, they wanted to follow the Lord. They wanted to follow Paul, Silas, whoever it may have been. And so if you want to say, well, we can't put the servant girl on the story, that's okay. You remove her. It's still a story worth telling without her. But it's safe to believe she probably was there. So you have a Jewish woman in her family. You have a Roman soldier in his family and a slave girl. This is not a group that looks like each other. This is not a group that had a whole lot in common. And that is just not the way. And again, I would have to defer to my brothers and sisters in this room here tonight, today, who have done church planting. But that's probably not the way you're looking to start a church. You take people from divergent culture, divergent values, who don't get along, who don't like each other, who don't want to be around each other, and you bring them together and say, this is an ideal group to start a church with. But that's exactly what God did. Think about it. Who do you hang out with? For most of us, we hang out with folks that are just like us. Who are the people on your Facebook page, your Twitter account, your Instagram? Aren't they people you agree with? Aren't they people who have a fair amount you have in common with you? They, I mean, they might even tend to look just like you. Look. All right, I'm not working. There you go. I mean, Pastor Steve, is there anyone else like me here? I said, I don't think so. But he still came. You know, we want people who look like us. We want them to be white like us. We want them to be black like us. We want them to be Mexican like us. We want them to be Puerto Rican like us. Whatever it may be, we're looking for people who look like us. I went and I just Google searched people who look like us, and that guy popped up, and I thought, oh, my gosh, i got to use that. <laughs> Looks just like you, Steve. Is he your cousin? No. In reality, this is what we do. We want people who look like us, who think like us, who talk like us, who believe like us, who have the same likes and dislikes as us. We want the people who like the same team, the same person, the same band. That's who we want to look. We want to hang around people where we're all the same. It is just rare, extremely rare, for us to look for somebody who is not like us. I heard of a guy recently... And I thought it was a pretty interesting social kind of experiment. And apparently in the San Francisco area, there are all these open groups. And you can find them through social media. And all these open groups, they just have, well, this is an open meeting. You, anyone can come and attend. And there were so many of them that he, de- he was a programmer. So he developed this algorithm or some kind of way so that on so many days of the week or every week or something like that, his computer would select an open group to him to go to that he had never been to before. Not one that he has something in common with, but just one who says, hey, you can come. He said, I would show up at people's doors, and I'd knock on the door and say, hi, I'm Bob. I heard there's a meeting here tonight. And he'd walk in and be 
everyone who are Muslim, you know, full dress. He'd walk in and be, everyone was black, and he was the only white guy. And he says, so many times I walked into these experiences where I was the only one like me. And there were some times I thought, I don't want to do this. And he said, by the end of the night, it was really surprising how much we had in common and how much it was a joy. It's a lot of work for us to put ourselves in those situations. And beginning a new church, or any other organization for that matter, usually doesn't set out to find people who are radically different from each other, who never associate with each other, who have nothing in common with each other, who are racially and economically and professionally and all other ways different. We would consider that's just not a well-thought-out plan. That is not going to work unless the plan includes the radical, saving, transformational grace of God. Because that grace... What just happened? That's last week's sermon. You liking it? This is this week's sermon. There you go. Because that grace only happens because of Jesus. He removes barriers and he knits people together from diverse backgrounds and various places. Knit. I like that word knit because knit means to form or to create from a diverse sources or elements. To form or to create from divorce to diverse sources or elements. And we have that here in the Church of Philippi. A Roman family, a Jewish family, and a slave girl. Now, because of that, we can flip over in your Bibles to Philippians 1 now. Because these divergent people, this Roman family, this Jewish family, and this slave girl stayed there and began to grow in Christ and began to share that newfound faith with others in the greater city of Philippi, there grew a church. And so here we are years later, and Paul is writing a letter to them, the letter, the letter to the church in Philippi, the book of Philippians. And what God did was he took different threads, different strands of yarn, and he knitted them together to begin this church. Now, there is a theme in this book that I want us to look at that we're not going to spend a huge amount of time on. We just don't have that time to do it. But in this, this book, there is the theme of unity. Now then, if you were to take your glasses and, you, and if you were to do this, like this week I saw for the first time a guy who had seen colors for the very first time. It was making the rounds. You might have saw it. And the dude put on these glasses, and for the first time he said, my blue jeans are blue. And, and he was stunned at what he saw for the very first time. It was really moving to see it happen. So let's imagine that you can take glasses, and you can put those glasses on, and you can begin to read the book of Philippians in the context of unity. That you're reading this book, and you're saying, what is God teaching me about unity this book. So with that in mind, let's kind of look at some of the things that we read all the time and we maybe take them and apply them in different ways that are not inappropriate, but let's apply these same very common 
verses to the book of Philippians here. In Acts 15, I want you to note one thing. Here we are. We just are in this book, and it's gonna, we're going to be reading about, about unity. But in Acts 15, you read the story of two major disagreements. And those disagreements lead into the forming of a church of people who don't belong together necessarily. Those two disagreements, was one of them was the Council of Jerusalem, where the, 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 Jewish lead, the Christian leaders who had all been Jewish and now are having to figure out what do we do with these Gentile believers, they're having a disagreement about how Jewish you have to be to be a Jewish Christian. And there's a big discussion around that. And it was a sharp division, and they came out of it with some agreements about what that would look like. But the other disagreement you find is between Paul and Barnabas and what to do with Mark. Because Mark apparently had left during the middle of a trip at one time, and Paul said, he's a quitter, and I will not have him come with me. And Barnabas says, he's good for the ministry. He needs to come. And so the two of them who were about to leave said no, and they went their own separate ways. But what happened with that disagreement they disagreed why well. They disagreed well, which can happen. And what happened in that disagreement furthered the church in Europe. Lydia, the lady in the story, was the first European convert. The very first. And so here we have these two disagreements that led to a church being started of divergent people. And now here's this letter to the Philippians. If we read this book with this idea of unity in mind, let's look at some passages here. So, for instance, the very first one, one of the ones that I learned early on and I preached on very early on, is chapter 1, verse 6. For I am confident in this very thing that he who began a good work in you will perfect it into the day of Jesus Christ. It's not in spite of the differences, but it's in light of the differences that God is building a church here. And those differences don't stop or limit God in any way. What he began... He is finishing. And so as he, br- begins, as he brings these people of different backgrounds and of different cultures together, he is saying, what I started in you, Jeremy, I'm going to finish because it's going to look like Jesus. And then he's going to take Dave, radically different, different age, different everything. He says, what I started in you, Dave, I'm going to make you into Jesus. And when those things come together, there are not differences. Paul talked about it at one time in one of his other letters. He says, there is no gr- gr- Greek, there is no Jew, there is no Gentile. All that stuff is washed away because we are in Christ. And even the passage that I read earlier out of Philippians 3, he says, we are not citizens of, of, of Philippi or Jerusalem or Rome. We have a heavenly citizenship. And as we grow into that citizenship, all these things that we identify ourselves by in this life fade away because we are his And now we don't have a king of Jerusalem. We don't have a king of Rome. We don't have a governor of of, uh, Asia Minor. We don't have any of that. We have a King Jesus that we serve and that has put us on a mission and has put us on a path and has put us on a journey. And our citizenship is there and not here. I, I need, I'm, this, is, this will be, I, I have, I, I don't think it's wise as American churches 
to do some of the things that are happening in American churches these days. One of the largest churches in the nation just past week had a huge Sunday morning church service, had a huge Celebrate America service. Then they got invited to sing this past Thursday for the president there at the Capitol at his big Celebrate America thing as well. It's not that celebrating America is wrong. It's that we are celebrating Jesus here, and we happen to be Americans who do it. And there are those who blend the two too much, and the lines get blurry. I'm proud of all of our veterans. I'm proud to be an American. I'm proud that we are able to be here and worship freely, but we serve King Jesus. First and foremost. First and foremost. And so when we come together, that's who we come together as. We are still patriotic as Americans, but we serve King Jesus first and foremost. What he started in us, he will finish. He started in us a work of knitting us together. He will complete that. Verse, chapter 1, verse 9, abounding in love. He speaks to them and he talks to them about having abounding love. And I pray that you may have love that abounds still more and more in real knowledge and discernment. And so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Having been filled with the fruit of righteousness, which comes through Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Abounding in love. when he's, he's knit together these people. He's knit together us in this room. And there are people in this room who have different opinions about all kinds of things. I've had people who got mad and leave our church because a guy wore a hat in church. Strong opinion. Is it a leaving opinion? Where is the sanctification and those kind of things? Many of us have been in the church long enough to have seen all kinds of ugly things happen over opinions. They did not have to do with the gospel. They did not have to do with the divinity of Christ. They did not have to do with any of those things. And yet, we allowed those things to not, we allowed ourselves to not abound in love in such a way that those minor issues separate us and cause division. And what does he say that abounding love should create in us? He says, abounding love should make, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. That staying knitted together in, in, in disagreement approves things that are excellent, approves and points to Jesus. Conduct yourself worthy, a manner of the gospel, chapter 1, verse 27. Standing firm with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He says, conduct yourselves worthy of the manner of the gospel, so that whether I come and see you or, may, or remain absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together in the faith of the gospel. What is he saying there? Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel? What is the main point? Some people, how different someone may be from you or the gospel. That, that the main point is the gospel. And whether someone chooses to wear a hat in church or not, that is a minor issue. What is the main point? 
Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. So that you can point to the gospel. So that the gospel remains the main thing. All that other stuff should fall by the wayside. But the gospel should remain the main thing. And when the main thing is the main thing, all the little things just fall by the wayside. They don't get in the way. When we make the gospel the most important thing, all smaller things fall away. And there's only one thing I can point to that many of us remember and many of us would understand. And that would be, what was it like on September the 12th, 2001? What was that like? When the guy cut you off in traffic that day, you didn't, honk, you didn't honk your horn and cuss him. It was kind of like, you know what? It's not important. It's just not important. That day, maybe that week, probably not that whole month, but that day, that week, we as a people knew what was important. And those other things didn't get in the way. Those other things didn't divide us. One thing knit us together in that day. And so here, one thing should knit us together. If you're coming to our church for the very first time, the question you need to ask if you're trying to figure out if you want to stay with us is, what do you believe about Jesus? What is the gospel? How does a man and a woman and a child get saved? How do they remain saved? That's what you need to know because that is the main thing. That is the main thing. And all the other things should pale in comparison. Chapter 1, chapter 2, verse 1 through 2. All the ifs in verse 1, you can read them as since. That would be appropriate translation. Since, therefore, there is encouragement in Christ, and since there is consolation of love, and since there is a fellowship of the Spirit, and since there is affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, intent on the gospel. Because of, if all of that is true, the same mind, the same spirit, united in spirit, intent on the gospel, that one, per, that one point, the gospel. Move over into chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, and all of a sudden he talks about humility, of counting others as more important than ourselves. And then he gives the example of that humility in the nature of Jesus Christ. And then in chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, he talks about doing all things without grumbling or complaining. This is a verse that I think we could just vote on maybe coming back and studying more at length in 10 or 20 years. I don't want to get too much into it because complaining and grumbling is my nature. We should have a support group for this verse. I would be the chairman. What is the benefit of not complaining or grumbling? Paul likes it as to being blameless and innocent and even says that it's being light in a dark world. And then chapter 3, verses 4 through 11, Paul now stacks up his credentials. And he begins to talk about who he is and what he came from and, and his being a Jew, being circumcised the eighth day, being a Gentile, I mean being a Benjamin. 
He says, I was the most zealous there could be even persecuting the church. And then what he finally says is that I had every credential there was to be somebody. I was someone. I was something. You should have been respecting me. And he says, all of that was as much as dung. Some would say that the word translated is more coarse than that even. It is nothing more than human refuse. You can flush all my credentials down the toilet. Because nothing, he says, nothing compares to knowing Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 15, he says, Let us all have this attitude, the same that Christ had. Don't hang on to what you think you are. Don't hang on to what you think you have. But instead, embrace Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 20. We are not Romans or Jews or Greeks. We are citizens of heaven. Don't let these differences create issues because we are citizens of this other place, this place to come. Interesting, when he goes into chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, he's talking to two women who are in a disagreement in the context of this letter. And he says, work it out, ladies. And then he begins to talk. Think about this. If you're trying to figure out how to get along, if you're trying to figure out how to be together when you're different, chapter 4, verse 4, he begins to say, this is how you do it. This is how you do it. You pray. You give thanks. You tell God about it. And you get peace. He goes on to say, and he says, dwell on these things. Dwell on truth. Dwell on honor, dwell on what's right, what's pure, what's lovely, what's good repute, excellent, worthy of praise. And then he closes out that passage in chapter 4, verse 19. He says, and my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. We typically read that verse and we think about, well, when I need money, God's going to supply it. When I need a husband, God's going to supply it. When I need a job, God will take care of that. You know, for me, this past year has been a a car that runs most of the time. God will supply every need. I'd like to suggest this. I would like to suggest that God supplies the needs that often tend to divide us. Our need to be right. Our need to be superior in some way. Our need to be seen with the right people. Our need to have things done my way. Our need to have things done by my theology, my need to be an American, a Calvinist, a Baptist, a Ukrainian, a Texan, white, black, rich, famous, Puerto Rican, whatever it is that we, can de- we identify ourselves by in this life, he says, set that aside, and the need to have some kind of identification, place that on Jesus, he will meet that need. God can supply all that we think we need so that we can allow him to be glorified in our bodies, in our lives more fully. There are a lot of things, a lot of things that can divide us. But none of them have to divide us. Unity is not all that we think. Unity is being in agreement on the gospel, even in the midst of the things we are very different about. Because that helps us shine as light in the darkness. That says we are different when we are unified, even amidst differences, that points to Jesus. And that's what we, as a church, are supposed to be doing. Let's pray.